And it inspired me to personally step out of my own comfort zone a little bit more. So we learned how only God can free a captive heart. That was week one. We learned how only God can soften a heart of stone. That was last week. Today we are going to be diving into the Scriptures once again. We're going to be looking at how only God can grow a human heart. We're going to be studying Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 30 today. You see, when Chris told me what chapter that I would be teaching this week, he asked me if I'd be willing to do Lectio Divina. And I kind of scratched my head for a second and I said, you want me to play an Iron Butterfly song in church? He said, no, you idiot. You're thinking of Inagata Divina. This is Lectio Divina. It's not a song. It's a Latin term. It means divine scripture reading. It's where you take a pen, you underline a phrase. As you're reading through the scripture, you underline things that stand out to you. Maybe you circle a word. Maybe you underline a verse as you go through a particular passage. You just kind of see if something speaks to you. You see if God's going to prompt something to you. Maybe something will catch your eye a little bit. A theme will stand out. We actually printed the, in, the entire scripture in a, on a separate piece of paper. If you guys, as I read this, if you want to take your pens and if you want to see if something jumps out at you, if not, feel free to grab your Bible, turn it to where we're at, and, uh, and follow along. I'm going to read this for everybody. Verse 19, it begins, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judah. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So there's four phrases that I am going to pull out of this text for you today. The things that stood, that really jumped out to me as I was going through this. You see, I've been reading this text over and over and over again this week. And I've kind of been unpacking some of the 
unique things that were going on with this early church, specifically with this church in Antioch that we are going to be discussing today. Now back to verse 19 again. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So who is Stephen? We'll start there. In Acts chapter 6, it talks about the numbers of disciples were increasing at this point. So the church was starting to get bigger. People was believing. More people were coming to Christ. So naturally, this is a good thing. But naturally, anytime you have a large group of people together, you start to have some problems. And one particular problem that they was having was some Jews from Greece that the Bible refers to as Grecian Jews. They were complaining about the Hebrews, the Hebraic Jews. They were the native Jews. You see, the Grecian Jews were complaining that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So you've got to remember, everyone, this early church, everyone was together. They were living together. They were doing life together. This was the first church. So what was happening with all this complaining was that the apostles, the original 11 that was with Jesus, plus the new one, Matthias, that they added, he replaced Judas, who was the traitor. Are you following me here? They was having to take care of all these responsibilities, all these disputes. And it was keeping them from doing what they do best. And that was teaching. That was preaching the Word of God. So they chose seven people to handle these disputes. And Stephen was one of the seven that was chosen. The Bible says Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it also says he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. So, as opposition arose against this new movement, against the church, certain men opposing the church lied about Stephen, accusing him of bad things. And, and this stirred up all the people. So he's arrested. And in Acts 7 is the account of when Stephen was killed. You see, Stephen was the church's first ever martyr. Meaning he's the first person who was a follower of Jesus who died for his faith. He was stoned to death. Which means that people gathered around him. They threw rocks that would hit him in his head, hit him in his face, pound him in his chest. And even as he fell to the ground, they would continue to pelt him until death. And what is really interesting about this, as Stephen was being hit with rocks, the account in Acts 7 says he looked up to heaven and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now let me tell you why this is so interesting. In every other situation throughout the Scriptures, when it talks about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, it says He is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the only account ever where Jesus is standing 
at the right hand of God when the first martyr in the first century died for his faith. I mean, centuries have gone by, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions have died for their faith since, but it all began with this guy named Stephen. And when Stephen was being killed, Jesus stood to his feet, a standing ovation in honor of this man dying for his faith. That's some powerful stuff right there. And you know what else is interesting about this? In Acts 7, verse 58... It says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. You see, according to law, witnesses were leaders in the execution. They would take off their upper garments. And this would confirm that the charge against the person was true. And they would actually lay it down at the feet of the person that was in charge of the execution. This is the same Saul Chris talked about in week one who became Paul. This was before his Damascus Road experience. Saul was there and the scriptures say that he gave approval to this killing of Stephen. So Stephen dies and with his death, with this persecution of the church, this persecution of these Jesus followers, the church scatters. Jerusalem's unsafe. People were scared. The apostles stay, but everyone else scatters. Saul gets approval to hunt down these members of this new movement. So people start running. They start going in different directions. They end up in different places. Some go to Phoenicia. Some go to Cyprus. Some to other places. And some go to a city called Antioch. And these disciples began teaching the Jews in these cities about Jesus Christ. Now last week, you learned that later on in Acts 10, Peter, one of the original apostles, he has this vision that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but it was actually for everyone. You see, before this vision, Jews were the only ones being ministered to. You see, Jews already knew the Scriptures. Jews already knew the laws. They already believed in God. They just didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah that their Scripture speaks of. You've got to remember, the Jews were God's chosen people. This was an exclusive club. And they were disgusted by other people. It reminds me of a story. I was standing in a hallway in a gentleman's house one time. And his daughter comes in the house and she passes me in the hallway and she's like 14. She goes to the first door. She opens it. It's her brother's room. And she says, Ew, who's the old guy standing in the hallway? And I'm thinking, Hello? I'm right here. I can hear you. It wasn't like, oh, I mean, it was like a really disgusted, like, ew. But that's how Jews were. That's how Jews were with anybody else, with any Gentiles. But God tells Peter, no, this is for everyone. 
But you see, all the men that I just told you, all the people that were scattered, all the people that were sharing the gospel in other places, they didn't necessarily understand this whole thing yet that Peter did. You see, they were still off doing their thing. And in verse 20, it says, Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So these men go into Antioch, and this became the first major city for the gospel to ever hit. They go in and they start looking for Jews. They start looking for Jews so they can share the gospel to, to the Jews. And I can imagine that maybe some Greeks were listening in. They're kind of hearing it. And all of a sudden they're like, whoa, this sounds pretty cool. I'd like to know a little bit more about this. And they discover that these non-Jews, these Gentiles, these Greeks, decided that they would like to become followers of this Jesus guy as well. And this is good for us. Because you see, without a moment like this, the gospel wouldn't actually be for us. I mean, this is a major, major shift that's taking place. Now let me tell you a little bit about Antioch. This was a major, major city. It was the capital of Syria. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was the biggest, Alexandria was the second largest, and then came Antioch. You've got to think of it like Chicago. Chicago is the third biggest city in the United States behind New York City and Los Angeles. So Antioch had a similar influence as Chicago has to us in the United States. Antioch had about 500,000 people and was extremely diverse in ethnicity. I mean, Antioch was a true multi-ethnic city. Now, obviously, we know that there were Romans and Greeks in this city. But because Syria is close to Israel, there's a lot of Jews. Because it's close to Africa, there were a lot of Africans. Because it's close to Asia, there's a lot of Persians, there's a lot of Indians, there's a lot of Chinese. So there's a large group of nationalities that all came into this city, came together in this city called Antioch. I mean, it was very unique. Now, verse 21 says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And that is the first phrase that I'm going to pull out of the Scripture today. That's the first thing that really jumped out at me, was the Lord's hand was with them. Because this means that something divine was taking place. Man, God was in the midst of this stuff. Working. God's doing something here. The first fill-in, you are never alone when you are doing the will of God. You are never alone when you are doing the will of God. You know, sometimes you may feel alone. Sometimes you may feel all alone, but you're never alone when you're doing what you know is right. Or were you doing what God is leading you to do. I mean, this is true whether you're facing adversity for maybe standing true to your faith, whether you're in school, whether you're at work. 
Maybe you're being ridiculed. Maybe you're being talked about. Maybe you're being made fun of. This is also true in the moments where temptations creep into your mind. Weaknesses that you may have. Desires that you may have. The hand of God is with you. I mean, I can imagine Jesus standing and cheering us on, saying, man, hold steady. Stand true to your belief. When times are tough, when times are hard, when things are challenging. I can imagine Jesus saying, you know, I think the small things are important. Honor me when you sit down at lunch in front of your coworkers or your friends at school. Bow your head and give thanks. Don't worry what everyone else thinks. I'm with you. You know, maybe when you're called to speak to someone about your beliefs, like these men in Antioch, stepping out of your comfort zone and maybe speaking even when people may not be receptive to what you're saying. I mean, I imagine these men were probably a little bit nervous about all the others that were listening in. They were probably a little uncomfortable. I mean, these men in Antioch were reaching out of their comfort zones. And the hand of God was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22 says, News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so who's Barnabas? The first mention of him is in Acts 4, verse 32. This is before the church is scattered. Everyone's still in Jerusalem. And a guy by the name of Joseph, he hears the good news of Jesus. He sells a field that he owns and he gives the money to the apostles. And I'm guessing that as his gifts and his talents are kind of being discovered, that they find out that he's a very encouraging person. And they nicknamed him Barnabas because Barnabas really means encourager. Now it seems like they probably could have came up with something a little cooler. I mean, the guy's name was Joseph. J-Dog, J-Wow, the Joe Meister. But I imagine Peter grabbing a hold of him, you know, getting him in a headlock like guys do, kind of pulling him down a little bit, giving him a noogie, saying, I'm going to call you Barnabas, you crazy little encourager. Come here. You won't find that in any study material, but I think that that's what's happened. And he ends up becoming the guy that they would actually send out to encourage people. So if you were feeling a little beat down, they sent Barney in. And he made you feel a whole lot better. Barnabas could make you laugh. Man, Barnabas would make you feel good about yourself because that is what an encourager does. And that's who Barnabas was. We have a lot of Barnabases in this church. Too many to actually name, but people that are always reaching out. Man, they're always encouraging other people during tough times. Mike King is one that comes to mind, especially for me personally. He's always a guy that just always 
builds me up and makes me feel good about myself. David Laporis is another example of that. Dave is a guy that I reached out to and I discipled when he was very new to faith. But then Dave turned around and has become an encourager to me and to so many others in this church. I mean, his humor, or lack of, (laughs) is very uplifting and he always has a way of making you feel better. It's usually when he leaves that you feel better, but he does make you feel better because he's an encourager. That's who Barnabas was, an encourager. Goes on and says in verse 23, When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So that's the second phrase. That's another phrase I want to highlight, I want to pull out, is saw the evidence of the grace of God. That's the second thing that leaped out at me. So Barnabas shows up and it's really obvious to him that God is at work. It's obvious to him that God is doing something here. Now what do you think people see today when they look at the American church? Do you think they see the grace of God? I mean, you take someone outside of the church and you wonder what their impression is of it. I mean, people drive by church buildings every day and a lot of times they get impressions by maybe seeing a sign. That can be taken in two different ways. Or maybe this one. Makes you want to visit that celebration, huh? But it's funny. Maybe this one here. Oh, yeah. It's got everybody covered. This one here is a good one. That is true and funny and understandable. So these signs give an impression that the church can be lighthearted. Christians don't have to be Serious all the time. Now, unfortunately, there are times when other signs give people impressions of Christians. You know, sometimes there are groups of people that pick at certain public events, sporting events or even funerals. Some people get an impression that this is what God's people really think. Such hateful messages that gets aligned with the church, that gets aligned with Christianity. I mean, that's the wrong impression of the church. If I thought that's what the church was, I'd get as far away from that as possible. There was a survey done a couple years ago among 16 to 29-year-old young Americans And they were asked if they had to give one word to describe Christians in America, what would that be? And number one was anti-homosexual. 
Number two was judgmental. And number three was hypocritical. That is the perception of the church. The evidence of what they see. I mean, it seems the message of grace has become so unclear, so distorted, so forgotten. So what did Barnabas see? I mean, what did he see in the people of Antioch that would cause the scriptures to record it as seeing the evidence of the grace of God? Man, what a phrase right there. Now first, in verse 21 and in verse 24, the phrase is, great number of people believed and were brought to the Lord. So that's evidence of the grace of God, right? I mean, no doubt about that. But I've been looking a little bit deeper. Now I told you that Antioch was a very multi-ethnic city. When they built this city, they built a huge wall around it, which was customary for first century cities. It was to protect the city against enemies who might want to come and attack. And I told you earlier that many ethnicities were represented in the city of Antioch. There were, in fact, 18 separate quarters built into the architecture of the city. And the reason they built it that way was they actually had to keep these ethnicities from mixing with one another. So they built 18 sets of walls within Antioch so that the different cultural groups would not have to interact with each other. They knew that every cultural group, every ethnicity, thought that they were superior to the rest. And what would happen was if a Jew stepped on the cloak of a Roman or there was some sort of dispute between an African and a Chinese, then a fight. A conflict would break out. And it was this whole big disproportionate thing where they'd be fighting over food and then they'd want to wipe out every single person in that race. So these walls meant that people could go into the marketplace and then they could go back behind their wall and they could be with people that were just like them. But then... For the first time in history, people heard the gospel and they started crossing the walls to worship together. See, you've got to realize that religion was closely associated with your culture. Ephesians would worship Ephesian gods. The Greeks, the Greek gods. Romans, Roman gods. Jewish people, naturally, the Jewish god. But for the first time ever... People were scaling the walls. People were breaking down walls to be together as one community. And this had never happened before. That is what was so evident of the grace of God. The gospel brings people together. The gospel brings people together. That's why it says in verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You see, they actually had to come up with a brand new name to give these people because they defied category. 
I mean, they couldn't say there's Romans over there worshiping or there's Jews or there's Greeks doing what they do. This defied category. They had to create a brand new name for this community of people, so they called them Christians. The community was so unique. It was so different. It astounded the city. The gospel was truly bringing people together. And that's the real gospel of Jesus Christ. The real gospel brings people together. I mean, it honors people. It brings people together in harmony that they may be able to worship together as one community. And in this account, in Antioch, the entire city was astounded because this had never happened before. The city of Antioch saw firsthand that the church has the power to bring people together. We have doctors in this room making six figures sitting next to homeless people. We have rich, we have poor, we have young, elderly, different levels of education, different upbringings, different nationalities. Some of us have tattoos. Some of us have long hair. Some of us have bald spots. There's GEDs. There's PhDs. The gospel... The real gospel brings people together and I see the evidence of that in here. Verse 26 says, So for a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And that's the third phrase that I want to pull out. It's taught great numbers of people. You see, Barnabas and Saul came to Antioch And Saul's been converted at this point, so he is now Paul. And they teach great numbers of people. They teach the people the scriptures because spiritual growth occurs through the word of God. Spiritual growth occurs through the word of God. The most powerful task that you can do for spiritual growth is to study and interact with your Bible. That's the most powerful thing you can do if you want to grow spiritually. I mean, there's a bunch of other things that God uses to help us grow. There's serving, there's worship, there's community. But miles and miles ahead is studying the Scriptures. Because that is what brings about transformation. Only God can grow a human heart. And the primary way He does it is through us feeding on the Scriptures. Maybe you haven't grown spiritually in a long time. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you're on pause. You know, if you're going to make one change in your life, Just one change, just to try to kickstart some spiritual growth, to try to foster spiritual growth in your life, my advice to you is to increase your regular access to the Bible. Increase it. You can do the iron butterfly method that we are doing today. 
by finding a passage, by maybe underlining a, some different things, maybe jotting down some notes. It's a great way to grow spiritually. God will speak to you. You should see the table at my house. I've got my computer. I've got my Bible. I've got all these study guides all over the table because when something catches my eye, I want to learn more about it. And then I grow deeper because of that. And apparently Barnabas and Saul knew the power of this because that's why they invested an entire year to the foundation of biblical education. They were teaching these people the Scripture. And of all the things that they could have been doing as this church was just getting started, of all the different things that Barnabas and Saul could have been doing, they could have been out planting new churches. They could have been encouraging people. They chose to stop and spend an entire year with these new believers so that they could instill in them a foundation of the Scriptures so that they might be equipped. Now this grew and expanded the hearts of the believers. And that got them ready for the last movement in this text. If we go to verse 27, it says, During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judah. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So a prophet named Agabus comes along. And he predicts this severe famine over the entire world. And I'm going to tell you what happened here. During the reign of Claudius in A.D. 45, the Nile River was unusually high. The banks flooded. There was a hundred-year flood. And it flooded all the grain in Egypt. And this was big trouble for the Roman Empire because crop was foundational to the economy. So it wasn't that there wasn't any crop at all. It was just significantly smaller than what was normal. So by the fourth quarter of A.D. 45, the price of grain was more than double any other time in the Roman period. So it wasn't that there was no food. It was just people couldn't afford it. The wealthy had to tighten their belts a little bit. But what do you think happened with the poor? They wasn't getting anything. And it's not much different than what we tend to face a lot. It's not that we don't have gas. We just can't afford it anymore. Right? So in this scripture, what would this mean to you and I? We go into verse 29. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judah. And that is the last phrase that I'm going to pull out of the Scripture today. Each according to his or her ability. Because some people, they can give a lot. But there's some people that can't give very much. That's why it says each according to his 
or her ability. The four phrases that we've pulled out of today's scripture, they go together to make a theme. God is at work. People encounter God's grace. God grows their hearts through the teaching of the scripture. And then they, in turn, respond to people in need. So this church in Antioch, this faith community, they hear of certain needs. And then they make a decision. They considered what they could bring to the table. And then they started to give. And I think this speaks directly to each one of us. Saying it's time for us to be thinking very carefully about how we are helping. Everyone is called to do something. Everyone is called to do something. There's a group of guys in this church that reach out into the community and have built handicap ramps for families that couldn't afford one otherwise. If it wasn't for these people, they would not have these. That's evidence of the grace of God. Ladies in this church prepare meals for homeless people in our community. There's evidence of the grace of God. We have bag hunger where we bring in food every month and we donate it to this place. Their pantry supplies food for poverty-stricken families in the community. And then we also reach out two months of the year and we go in on Saturdays and we cook at that same place. We cook and we serve meals. It's a great way to outreach with your family. Our jar kids distributed bags of food to families in the community who were astounded by the evidence of the grace of God. We have Serve Fest once a month. We go out in the community. We show God's love. We hand out donuts for free. We have opportunities to help with Habitat for Humanity. Downtown Cleanup, Operation Christmas Child. These are all things that cost you nothing out of your pocket, but allows you to give according to your ability. That's evidence of the grace of God. May we be the kind of church that is known, that is known for reaching out, knowing that the Lord's hand is with us, doing the will of God, even when we may be a little bit uncomfortable at times. May we be the kind of church where people see the evidence of the grace of God. 
love being shown to everyone. People of every race and upbringing worshiping together. May we be the kind of church that is spiritually nourished by the scriptures so that God grows our hearts, helps us live beyond what our our idea is of the American dream. Reaching out as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to help others that are in need according to each of our abilities to love, to actually love the people of East Central Indiana into a relationship with Jesus Christ. May we in here be that kind of church. Let's stand for closing prayer. As always, the prayer team will come forward and they will be up here if anybody's needing prayer after the celebration. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, I pray that the, that the truth and the relevance of this church in Antioch just echoes in each of our minds. I pray that we may have ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to this church. That we might be the kind of community that defies category. Lord, I pray that we may catch a vision to be so racially and ethnically inclusive that we celebrate every person that comes in this place. The gospel truly bringing people together. Lord, I pray that it may may be said of our church that we are people that are so hungry to live in the Word of God that we can sense your activity, that you grow our hearts, that you move us beyond where we are. It's easy to think of just ourselves. God, I just pray that you grow our hearts and you give us the courage and you give us the ability to be able to think beyond that. Lord, I pray that we may be the community that reaches out with such generosity, such an outpouring of giving and compassion and love that people can say that they have never seen anything like it. Let us be the evidence of your grace. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Know you're always loved in this place. Have an awesome weekend. We will see you next week.
Come on.